BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Welcome to the Diversity Remix. I'm Charlie Echeverry. And I'm Jesus Chavez. Today's episode of Justice and Justices. What does the makeup of the Supreme Court mean for businesses and individuals in a time of social change when companies are looking to address diversity gaps? Are high court changes a blessing or a curse for business? Outside of the political process to nominate judges, how should the ideological views of a country be reflected in the Supreme Court? And how should the justices on the court reflect the population in other ways? This and other provocative questions on this episode of TDR. Jesus, we picked a doozy. Yeah, definitely relevant. I mean, I think our track record so far has been pretty good about picking things that are very timely. Obviously, tons of uh, interest, I think, in across the board, political, social, etc., but why don't we start with actually a little bit, just a really quick background on on what's been happening. Sure. And I'm assuming most people know this, but just just for those that may not. So uh, just uh, last week, actually 11 days ago, September 18th, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, or, or better known as the Notorious RBG for those uh, for fans of hers, um, who was a justice on the Supreme Court, uh, passed away from cancer. Uh, she was 87, right? Um, and she's one that I think sort of held a special place for a lot of people. Uh, especially because of some of her work on the gender equality and women's rights, and was one of four sort of liberal leaning judges of of the of the nine that, that are there, right? So, part of what was important there is that when you know for those cases that could go either way, having a five four sort of balance between conservative more leaning judges meant that you were having a lot of cases that could go any direction with just one swing vote from those that are tend to be more conservative, which actually happens quite a bit. And she'd been there for a while too. She'd I mean, been there for a while. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it's amazing to me, just as a side note that, I mean, these are posts that are for life, right? I mean, it's, it's a, there's a whole bunch of things that come up with this, right? Yeah. Which is, you're right. The second yeah, quasi religious sort of implicate, you know, connotations in terms and, of, and some for very good reason, right? Because, um, in part, the reason why those these are posts for life is that they're meant to be posts that are not influenced by the political sphere. As a matter of fact, I think one of the things that the the court has tried to for a long time, although we can argue that it's no longer the case or hasn't been the case for a while, is try to be apolitical, uh, an organization that basically is not swayed um, by either political party. Having said that, the reality is because they are actually nominated, they're not elected positions, they're nominated by by the sitting president, uh, and confirmed by the Senate, that's the actual process, 
um, it has become a big sort of battle for, I want to say the soul of the America, but a lot of, you know, basically what view of the of, of America we want to actually see. Like everything else, it's become a, and this isn't just of recent vintage. I mean, for a while, it's become yeah, for a, while. a very Correct. politically kind of contentious thing. I think the other evidence of, you know, the fact that they try to keep above the fray from a political standpoint is the fact that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was actually best friends, from what I've read, with Antonin Scalia on the court, right? Yeah. It's like she and, and Antonin and, Scalia, who was like super- And for political ideology. From an ideological <laughs> standpoint, could day, not have been, too, yeah. yeah. So you're right. So I think they probably did a pretty good job. But of course, the controversy here comes from the fact that we are basically five weeks away from an election. Um, and upon, you know, the news that, that, that came out about her passing, immediately Trump came out, President Trump came out and, and announced that he would be replacing uh, her seat with another woman, of course, with conservative ideology, which is actually a big part of what his uh, platform was. And he, you know, he made this commitment and to his credit, he definitely stuck to that commitment because this will now make the third uh, seat that he will be filling uh, during his presidency, which is a lot, right? We think of three out of, out of nine in total. And part of the concern, of course, and, and controversy is the fact that uh, during the last year or during the election year of President Trump, I mean, I'm sorry, President Obama, um, he had a, an open seat that he was trying to get filled that happened, I think, in February. And um, at that point, still Mitch McConnell, who was the, the, um, the chairman of the, of the Senate, uh, basically blocked his, his nomination saying that they should not be filling in a, a, a judicial seat. Or the um, for the Supreme Court in the same year as a, as a political as yeah. an election, which or they you know, chose not to vote on it. He he technically did make the nomination, but they didn't carry right. It they out. just they, yeah. they didn't even look at it right. Yeah. So, and of course, Mitch McConnell came out immediately saying, "Yep, we're going to vote on it." And and now, no, 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 that was only the case where you have a president and a and a, and a sure. Congress that are two different political parties. But that didn't mean that we would never do it. And on the other side, the 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 folks who were saying, "Let's you know, got to get it appointed," are now saying, "Wait, wait, hold up." We can't, we're too close to an election, that kind yeah. of thing. So everybody's changed seats, musical chairs. Musical chairs, although I, I would say the big difference here is that you are five weeks away from an election. Mm-hmm. And an election that at least, if you want to believe the polls, which obviously is a hard one to do that with Trump, because last time he was kind of in a similar position, but there's at least enough uh, data out there to say that there is a likelihood that he could lose. And maybe a fairly high. He's definitely behind from the poll, poll standpoint. From a poll perspective, yeah. right? So you think of it from the perspective of you have a president that may have maybe a one-term president, um, you know, has literally now the ability to do three, fill in three seats in the uh, in the Supreme Court, and the last one pushing it in or pushing it through, maybe even knowing that he may actually lose. Um, I think that's what sort of creates a lot of a lot of controversy. And then more importantly, like what is the impact that happens? Uh, beyond that, what is the impact that happens with a court that now will sit um, sort of six to three uh, with six conservative leaning uh, mm-hmm. judges versus three that are more liberal? What does that mean for for business? What does that mean for the country? And and honestly, how reflective is that of the country itself, which is why you know, we wanted to talk about it. Right. One of the other things that I thought about when you were just sharing the the, the quick recap is the idea that, and we kind of glossed over it, but that Trump nominated a woman to replace a woman. And just to prove further evidence that in positions like being the president, you're going to just get hammered from every side, even among your, you know, take friendly fire even. I read some complaints even about that notion among purists who are like, you should just pick pick the most qualified person. The fact that he came out even before he picked um, Judge Amy Coney Barrett, that the fact he had announced that he was going to pick a woman even before he named her, right? right? And there were people on, on, you know, on in certain sectors who were giving 
you know, giving him flack for that and saying, like, you shouldn't even announce that. You should just pick a person based on who they're going to be. Um, I found that kind of commentary sort of interesting. Well, and I think that, yeah, you, you hear that. You heard that as well, by the way, uh, with uh, Vice President Biden, right? And, um, and him announcing early on that he was going to pick a woman to be his, uh, his vice president nominee. And, and honestly, when I hear that, I think part of it, um, the reason why I disagree with that notion is that. Which notion? The notion that people are are upset when they hear someone like in the case of Trump or like the case of Biden, sort of pre declaring that, that they're going to have a woman be mm-hmm. filling that that role, is that it's somehow. And I think for the, the reason why they're complaining is that their mind is, well, that's not the most qualified person, right? Why don't you just pick the most qualified person? But the, but to me, it's like part of having the most qualified person is not only having the right background um, experience but also giving the right representation for what the country needs and perspective or what in this specific in this actually it was even more so in the case of having um, a, um, a a Supreme court, you should, you need to have women's perspective in that court. You need to have fair representation, right? The reality is when you look at the number of women that are in that Supreme court, it's still a very small number. Yeah. And, and you should have, as a matter of fact, more women on there. We're, we're, we're even with, with Amy, um, what's her Amy, Amy Barrett, who is the, the nominee for President Barrett, Trump, yeah. you still aren't going to have is uh, two, so, two, so two women, right? and Kagan and... Oh, and, three. And, and uh, uh, ACB, yeah. Right, so you will basically have three women in a Supreme Court out of nine, so 30%. Well, that's not at all representative of what the country is when you think sure. about population. There's a slight female majority, actually, in the country. Yeah, so, yeah. You're, so to me that it is, I mean, it's an obvious that it should be a woman because mm-hmm. we actually need more women... That yeah. is the most qualified person because you need that perspective. I think the other argument in, fa- in that in that court. I think the other argument in favor of what you just said is that we're also at a time and place where there's significant qualified candidates in both you know gender camps, if you will, because sure. you go back a hundred years, and even if you really wanted to, you wouldn't have had as many females coming out of the legal profession or having yeah. had been given the opportunities. It would have been, yeah, sure. been harder for sure a, a century ago and even further back. And the Supreme Court's super old too. That's the other thing. It's like 250 years old. You know, we forget how long this thing has been around. Um, so more, th- more to the point now, but I just brought it up as an example that, you know, <clears throat> you, you, you kind of think of th- these things that are, you know, fairly uncontroversial, right? The idea is like, I really would like to pick a woman to replace a woman. I think we've got, you know, the right amount of candidates to look at, but still there are, you know, folks who are, you know, unhappy with that because they think that either to your point, hey, that means you're not picking the best candidate or they're making a more principled point, which is a bit of a nuance on that, which is the first shot out of the cannon should be, let me find the best person. I'd love for that to be a woman. Like, you know, right. it's a bit of a nuance, but it just, I'm amazed by how people in these kind of high profile positions, especially the president, like no matter what you do, and obviously Trump gives a lot of material to work with, but even if it's not Trump, <laughs> sure anybody, does. Clinton, Bush, whoever, it is, it's just impossible yeah. to make everybody understand something without there being an opposing perspective. Well, yeah, you're perspective. not. Uh, you like know, Tetris. what I actually found more interesting, one is I, <clears throat> I, I did like the fact that, that Trump immediately came out and said it was a woman. But of course, in every situation with Trump, I always have, you know, what's the underlying reason for doing this, right? Like there's always like some kind of underlying thing that is happening there that I just don't trust the guy, of course. Um, but part of it, I think, was really interesting is that he is nominated a woman, but you couldn't nominate a woman that is a more opposite ideological sort of a spectrum. Of Ruth Bader. Or Ruth Bader. Yeah. And it's very similar to what happened with Clarence Thomas, right? Mm-hmm. Or African-American justice that was nominated, but the, literally the direct opposite of of what he was replacing, of who he was, I'm sorry, who he was replacing. 
So it is interesting, you know, but it kind of goes back to the same point. Just because it's a woman, you can't say it's like, oh, it's the exact same thing. No, it's not. It's actually a very different person, very different ideology. Yeah. Um, and to be clear, I don't know anybody or I haven't read anybody saying this is the exact same thing. The exact opposite I've read is like this is could not be farther from. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, from, yeah, yeah. So, from what was there. Which makes sense, right? I mean, obviously for for President Trump, mm-hmm. you know, his part of his objective was to bring in more conservative uh, judges, which he has. Um now, there's a bunch of things that are there that we can sort of get into, but I think one one place that we that we thought would be interesting to talk about is that you know you and I have spoken at length about the importance of representation in the context of organizations, right? The whole thing of like you have to make the inside look like the outside, and how important it is to to have that perspective for innovation, have that perspective to better connect with consumers. And thinking about this issue, you know, one of the first things that comes up is well. If we have a, a court that is not going to be significantly indexed towards being conservative, um, what is that? How does that compare to the ideological views of the country? And how have those views changed? You know, where are they headed? Um, and I think that's a sort of really interesting sort of place for us to kind of get into. So why don't we talk a little bit about that? Sure. Right? And as a starting point, what what I what I thought would be helpful is that, you know, of course, one of the things that came up in this sort of controversy of whether or not the Senate was even going to vote was that, you know, how many Republican senators would be, would, would actually refuse to vote on it. Whether right? or not they had the votes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So Mitch McConnell needs to make sure he has enough, enough the votes. And one of them that was that at least those on more on the liberal side of the equation were hopeful was with Mitt Romney, simply because Mitt Romney, who is a Republican senator out of Utah uh, and was previously a presidential candidate as well. Um, he has historically, at least for the presidential camp, um, um, for the presidential term of of of, of Trump, has been a big um, sort of thorn on his side. Yeah, sort of kind of gone against him on a number of different things. And it's not that he's a super like rock ribbed conservative or anything. I think his he's got a, a maybe, and I, I hate to say this because I don't know the man, but like it feels like he just has a hard time agreeing with Trump on anything. And so I think that that weighs in, and Trump has insulted him and whatever. Sure. They've gone back and forth in a very heated way. I mean, so I don't think it, he's yeah. like that it's some or I'm sorry, not rock rib conservative. I just I don't think he's necessarily like a liberal uh Republican. He's not. No. I just think that he that doesn't make him a rock rib conservative, by the way. But I don't right. think he's a liberal. I just think that he's got a personal animus that makes it hard for him to see straight when it's Trump. Um Well but, he's been yeah. you know, his position of being anti Trump has been consistent from the beginning. Oh, yeah. Right. No, very and principled Which about is, it. he's a principle. I mean, to that, you could agree with him or not, but he's been principled about that, at least, um, which you cannot say that about a lot of the other Republicans who were so against Trump, who so dismissed him, who Trump, in some cases, you know, made comments about their wives, and all, and all of a sudden, they all lined up the second that he became, you know, the, the nominee, and then, of course, the president. All of a sudden, they were all best friends. So, but Mitt Romney has not that, been that. By the way, that's a whole other show we got to do at some point. Is like, yeah. you know, how much of this can you, you know, expect from people, and how much is forgivable? Because the idea of like, hey, if the guy's the president, we got to figure something out. You know what I mean? Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but yeah, it does. It, the whole idea of falling in line right after you've been hammering each other, right, um, to a bloody pulp is. It, most people look at that and go, like, come on. Right. So, you know, in, in looking at the comments that Mitt Romney put out in his basically support of actually voting for the replacement of, of RBG, which is once again was, was a little bit of an unexpected. Um, it was really interesting. He said, and I quote, we may have a more conservative court that we've had in the last many decades, but my liberal friends have over many decades become used to having a more liberal court, which is not guaranteed or, or not written in the stars. It's also appropriate for a nation that is center right to have a court that reflects center rights points of view. 
And that last statement of having a nation that's center-right and therefore having a court that's more center-right points of view, it immediately caught my attention, of course, right? So my first question was like, well, is the country really center-right? Like, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel that way. And it's part of like living in your own bubble, right? Like we live in California. Sure. It's a very liberal state. And, and even on the western part of, of the state or, the, you know, the, the city of L.A., which is even more liberal, right? So you kind of forget that. But, you know, we did look at a study from Gallup uh, that was put out in January 2020. And I'll start right from the beginning, which is, is the country really center-right? The, the answer is yes, but, but the question is really for how long? So in looking at the- Yeah, uh, they're uh, super cool stats. I mean, yeah, it's sure. a really cool stats, right? So this study specifically, what it did is it tracks um, what America's ideological views, uh, how they've changed since 1992, to 2019, right? And, so this and, put up. and by the way, one quick caveat on this is this is self-reported, right? So yeah, yeah, we're yeah, asking people, how are you? These are, are based you, on polls, right? Right, but, but I'm saying at the end of the day, there's a person on the phone or whatever saying, are you, or over the internet, how do you describe yourself? Conservative, very conservative, liberal, very liberal, like- Correct. So yeah, it's yeah, yeah. self-reflective, right? It is self-reflective. So you always got to take all this stuff with a grain of salt, but, but I think as a trend is actually really interesting, right? So we look at that between, in that 27 year period, for conservatives, um, in 1992, it was about 36% of the nation considered itself conservative. And in 2019, that has basically stayed fairly flat. It's gone up to, by one percentage point, 37, which is a 3% increase, right? For moderates, it went from 43% to 35%, so Huge about a 19% drop. drop. And then for liberals, it went from 17% to 24%, which is a 42% increase. So, so monster... So basically flat people seeing them over, this is over an almost three decade period. Yeah. Okay. So over the course of three decades, the, the percentage of people who describe themselves as conservative grew marginally. So it was a tiny little percentage. The moderate group self-identified dropped substantially and the liberal group grew right. substantially. substantially. Right. So, so you can basically make the case that the liberal group grew from taking more folks from the moderate into be, being liberal, right? As a percentage, right? Um, and so the, the question here, and I think one of the things that we talk about quite a bit about the political moment is polarization, right? And how much that's pushing people to the edges. But if you think about polarization relative to how many people see themselves conservative, the answer really is it hasn't seemed to make that much of an impact. Now, you can make an argument of people that are considered conservative, are they more conservative? Maybe, right? So we're not talking about sort of degrees of, of, of how conservative they are or not, but as least as, as it relates to the percentage of population that considers themselves conservative, it hasn't really made that much, actually, it seems like it made no difference whatsoever. You are seeing it though, however, on the liberal side, right? You are seeing a pretty big increase there, there that, it, that is happening. But the, the double click into that data, which I thought was really interesting, is when you see that polarization reflected more in the political parties, right? So here's where you are seeing that ideology of, of for, for Americans really get a lot more reflected and shaped out depending on which party they actually follow. So for Republicans, Really interesting for you know for for those that consider themselves Republicans in 1992 only 58 percent of them you know consider themselves conservative, and that has now grown to 73 percent now in 2019 so it's a 26 percent increase, and then those that consider themselves moderates it was 33 percent it is now 21 percent so it, that's a 36 percent drop so what you've seen in the Republican Party has become significantly more conservative overall right three quarters of that party is now considered conservative. And the moderate group is now, you know, about a quarter of, of, of that group. Now, in the case of Democrats, um, it's a little bit of, of a different scenario here. Is one is for liberals, only about 25% of Democrats consider themselves liberals in 1992. And that has now grown to 
right? Which is a pretty big increase, you know, almost almost doubled. But if you think about it different ways, is less than half or about half of Democrats consider themselves liberals. But which, it's a huge growth, though. It's a huge or, growth, or, but, I mean, but it's interesting in the context of when we think, many times when people, when we think of, think of liberals and Democrats, you sort of see like, Interchanging, right? Like, is that like the shorthand also, of that? I think that's also reflective, again, of the bubbles that we're in, right? I mean, For there sure. are Democrats throughout the country. They're increasingly at odds with the Democratic platform, but there are Democrats who are pro-life. There are Democrats who are, you know, very pro-business, pro-military, things like that. They don't happen to be, you know, in city government in Los Angeles, you know what I mean? Or in Manhattan, but they do exist, right? I think they're they're few and far. And I I think the same thing, by the way, on the Republican side that you think, okay, well, Republican equals conservative. That's also not the case. I mean, to your point, it's grown. So a much bigger percentage of the overall Republican pie is now made up of people who identify as conservative, but it wasn't always that way. It was people who could be more moderate. But I think the polarization that we're seeing here you know, if I'm if I try to summarize mm-hmm. what's, what's happening with the parties, the way that I would describe it is that you're seeing a Republican Party that is becoming more and more holistic, like overall just conservative, where those that are moderate are looks like they either leaving the party or becoming independent because I actually didn't break out the independent numbers to see how that broke out. Yeah, you know, the Democratic uh, side on Democrats for uh, you know the one thing you're seeing is yeah a big increase in liberal those are considered liberals still less than half or about half of the, of the party's Democrats. Which, which sort of speaks to why, in many cases, Democrats have a harder time of rallying around individual candidates, individual positions, because it's, a more, it's actually a more diverse group. When you have folks that are far left, think of a Bernie Sanders, compared to a Joe Biden, much more sort of central. There's almost like a bigger delta between those groups. Big, yeah. Much bigger delta, right? So, I, so when I saw that, I'm like, that makes so much sense to me as to why. Which, from a political strategy standpoint, you, you have more at, at risk there, potentially. You, you right? absolutely yeah. do, right? So you can say, well, even if there's more Democrats in total, I don't have the actual numbers in terms of percentages, uh, it still becomes a thing where it's just a more, because it's a much more mixed group, yeah. it's going to be harder to rally around specific causes, but it makes a lot more sense in my mind for Republicans how in, in some ways, because of being a much higher percentage of conservative, it will become easier to rally around different people, including the President Trump, even mm-hmm. though he had some issues early on with people mm-hmm. not liking him. It becomes a thing that is, you know, a lot more people are sort of in the, in the similar kind of sphere. There's so much that comes to mind when I see statistics like this, too. One of them is that, like, you know, has the average age of the country stayed still? Has it dropped? Has it increased? Right. right. The, the effect of immigration also on this. For sure. Because, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, in particular with uh, Latino immigration, um, you know, we tend to know Latinos tend to be on the Democrat side of the equation as an aggregate. Obviously, it varies depending on geography, but that's the case. So what impact does it have there? The other thing that it says to me or brings up is this polarization is not brand new. I mean, it's, you know, yes, it's come to this kind of fever pitch, I think, in 2020. And we've all been, you know, locked in. We've been locked down because of coronavirus and super contentious, you know, president and people who hate him and all this other back and forth. And it's gotten to a fever pitch, but this is 40 years of data that shows that there's been this balkanization or polarization that's begun to happen. Um, that's maybe now reaching a kind of a, you know, climax or whatever, right. but, but it's not brand new. That's the other thing. And then the, the, the third thing that I think about, we could talk about any of these, but is the impact, again, the boogeyman of social media. What has that done since we've been able to like share and expose all of these things quickly and, and, and create these sort of nodes of, of movements? How has that impacted this? Because my guess is it has in some way and accelerated that polarization. Yeah, for and, sure. And, you know, if anything. 
if you think about the drivers of age, of immigration, diversity, even education, I mean, the way that I would give you the really shorthand is the younger, the more educated, and the browner, the more liberal and less conservative they are. Just the, 100%. That's sort of the, 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 mm-hmm. the shorthand of it. So to your point, especially when you think about the, the impact that Latinos are having in the country being a big growth sector, you are going to see this continued increase of having more people that are, that are probably going to be more in the democratic side of the equation or more liberal side of the equation. Um, but but I think what it does sort of speaks when we look at all this data is the fact that you can look at this if we go all the way to the top of saying you have 37% of the nation that considers of conservative, 35% that considers of moderate, and 24% that considers of liberal, you can say that's a center-right nation. And technically that is correct, but it def- but, but what it doesn't tell you is that it's a nation that, you know, almost 70% of it should be considered conservative, which is depending on how you look at the, the makeup of the court, going back to what we started the conversation of the makeup of the court, what it definitely calls for is that we should have many more that are actually in the um, in, in in that sort of centralist or, or moderate sort of bucket uh, of uh, of court appointees if we really want to be have a court that is actually reflective of the yeah. people that are that are in the country. I think you can make a case of broadly just across the board. It's under indexing in a number of areas, right? But th- there's also a danger in that which we've talked about before is being too rigid about these sort of like um, you know population percentages can be. It can be, you know, it's not the only prescription to solve these things. Perfect. But if you look at it specifically from a representation standpoint, you know, uh, from an African-American standpoint, maybe you can make the case they're at about par, right? Because it's you have one African-American justice out of nine. Percentage-wise, right. is that close to 13? Probably, right? So, sure. you, you know, um, my math is not as good as yours, Jesus, but I think that's close. <laughs> yeah, I think it's close um, You have uh, Sotomayor, who's the one Latina on, the, yeah. on you know, one of nine is not nearing 20%, right? Sure. So um, I think and that's an under-index. Maybe there, yeah. Exactly. And you've got an under-index, as we've already talked about, from a, from a female from standpoint, females, yeah. because you've got three out of nine, and when the reality of it is, it should be closer to five out of nine if you do it strictly on a population basis. So I think you can make a pretty good case that the justices, as they, as they are right now, are not reflective from those two vectors, right? Yeah. Um, ideologically, which is, I think, to your point, you could make a case now that there's an over-index, assuming that uh, ACB goes through, uh, Amy Coney Barrett goes through. By the way, all, a lot of I, justices— I thought you already came up with the acronym. Lot, is is yeah, that a— Well, you know, the other thing a, I thought about this— A published acronym, that, or that's you just I trying just, to replace I, the I, RGB? I, no, I think the—well, the, the, for me, I don't know if it's published, but um, I have seen a couple of, of T-shirts oh, already really? made up about this. <laughs> but no, the, thing I, the reason I use it is because I always want to say Comey. Like Comey, yeah. the guy from the yeah, FBI, yeah, yeah. because he is so popular. It's not Comey, it's Coney. Got and it. so like, I, I don't want to call her the wrong name. So I just use the By acronym. Way, I'm, I'm worried that if we use ACB, that her name will be the infamous ACB because of, of when she's being... As opposed you, to the notorious? As, as opposed to notorious. So find, I think that's, that's why we worry about using the acronym with her right now. We have to find like, uh, since notorious was <clears throat> obviously notorious B-I-G, right? So yeah. we have to find a 90s hip hop album like <laughs> Nas or something to name yeah, her exactly. after. But no, um, and by the way, the other thing is, remember we had Sandra Day O'Connor too. It's like, for some reason, a lot of these ladies have three names for every time they great. become justices. But, <clears throat> but I think I think you can make a case about... Um, if you were to match it up ideologically, assuming you end up in a 6-3 scenario, and again, Kavanaugh has not exactly been 
at least very early, but somebody who swung, yeah. John Roberts has swung. So I don't know if you can make the hard case that this is a 6-3 hard majority, but if you were to do it that way, then you'd have an over-index relative to the numbers yeah, that we just it, covered. It's, you have a conservative-leaning court, yes. for sure, that is over-indexed relative to the country, which, you know, by looking at it, I think is by a lot. And by the way, another way to think about it that I thought would be helpful in this conversation is we we saw it, you know, we're, we just we just talked about it, you know, relative to this Gallup poll, which is to your point, self-reported. And that has, a, you know, as good as they, those are, I'm sure it has its own issues. Another way to think about it is like, well, if we measure, if we try to compare uh, sort of ideologic, uh, ideology relative to support uh, or relative to a voting record, right? And, and what I mean by that is, is think about public support for conservative ideology based on voting for Republican presidents. It was a, it was a really interesting stat. I wouldn't actually looked at it. Like in the same 27-year period, right, there has been one four-year term that a Republican president has actually won the popular vote, right? That's despite winning three terms, right? So uh, Bush, uh, specific President Bush uh, Jr., uh, won, um, he, he won actually his second term by popular vote, but not his first one, right? It, actually, it was actually a case where he actually did go to the Supreme Court. There was a big issue, if you recall, in Florida, where there was like the, 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 the infamous chads Dang in Florida. Chads. They were doing a, a whole recount. He won by 500 votes, I think. It was and they pushed it out. Amount. Yeah, they, but they brought it up to... Um, uh, Supreme, Supreme Court, Court. And the Supreme Court basically ruled that they to stop the recounts. It was it was actually going through a current recount in Florida, and they stopped it based on the Supreme Court. So having a Supreme Court that could be more conservative versus versus liberal can have an impact directly on whether or not a president gets uh, gets to win an election. Which is actually that's probably the other area that a lot of people are, of course, very skeptical with Trump, uh, and deservedly so because he's already made comments that. Basically saying that he he feels that the the Supreme Court is going to have to play a role in deciding who actually wins this election because of all of the concerns that he's raised, whether they're founded or not, but the concerns that he's raised as it relates to the voting process, specifically with mail-in voting. So it, it is another way to think about it. But even if, but if you look at it from that perspective, it's even more swayed as being ultra-conservative relative to at least what the popular vote has uh, has recorded for for presidential elections. Yeah, and I think that you know that leads to a question that maybe is a little far afield for this podcast about the electoral college and the popular vote and all that stuff. But you know, because you you hear you heard it from Trump in this last election that, and by the way, I don't believe him when he says that he could have won California. But he makes a good point in the sense that he wasn't trying to win California. He wasn't trying to go for the general vote because that's not how you win an election. You win an election based on electoral college. Sure. And that and that's is, a really fair point, by the way, because a, you're, well, you're worried relative to what the, you know, to the, obviously to, to how the system is set up. Right. And but, here, but here's also how I thought it was fair is that you and I have been for, you know, almost 20 years doing business strategy. And so you basically look at what the cards are that you have dealt and you build a strategy on the basis of what you can see. Now, if somebody said, well, the cards are different, then you take on a different strategy. Yeah, so while sure. I don't think that he could win California, he is right about saying that I never even attempted to do that. Of course, my strategy was Michigan and Pennsylvania and all that stuff. So it's hard for me to opine on the whole popular vote versus the electoral college stuff that very much ties into this particular question because I don't. I, that's an area that I'm way out of my depth on. But there is a difference in strategy that plays a pretty significant role. There is, and I think you're right in the sense that you can't, look at it too deeply. I just think as an indicator though, in terms of where sort of as a country, what the ideology is yeah. in general. I mean, the reality is when you think about, even you can make the argument about the Senate, right? The fact that you have a place like Montana has the same level of representation that California that has a fraction 
or the population of California. It's ridiculous. It yep. really is. Each state has two senators. Each state yeah. has two senators, right? Yeah. By the way, these are the senators that are now have enough votes mm-hmm. to pick who the Supreme Court is going to, you know, the Supreme Court nominee is going to actually be. So there's a lot of issues. Well, that. this actually brings up an interesting point that I know we're going to talk about next, but is this idea of how much of the past do you hold on to in terms of constitutional, yeah. you know, whatever, constructionism or whatever they call it, um, and how much do you adapt things to the way things are today? Because you could see the founders and the framers saying, hey, you know what, two from every state makes sense, and, you know, we have 13, then we have whatever it is, and the Louisiana Purchase, the next thing you know, you got 50. But they weren't thinking necessarily that California would have 40 million people in it and Montana exactly. would have two Yeah, that's a great, great point. Is. You think of from the original 13 colonies, which I, I don't know what the population was in those colonies, but it was tiny. the I mean, swings couldn't have been that, that high relative yeah. to what we have now. But that's a great, a sort of a great uh, way to sort of transition because I think when looking at the sort of the ideology based on some of these polls, you know, voting record, it's, it feels like a country that's a, a lot more moderate in many ways. I would agree with that. And I, I think it, and it's more trending. moderate and, um, it, 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 but yet having a court that is going to seem, at least from, from, uh, from the outside looking in, looks to be a lot more conservative. Having said that, when you look at the actual record, voting record, so we thought that was a good way to sort of think about this is that, because to your point, just because a, a judge, a justice, I'm sorry, was nominated by a Republican and or Democratic uh, president doesn't mean that once that justice is on the on the bench, they're actually going to vote consistently with a, both an either conservative or liberal leaning um, uh, sort of hat. Right. And we've seen it already. We very recently saw it in the, over the summer in the, of, in, the, in the case of Kavanaugh, where he, I think, in a couple of different cases, um, ended up siding with the side of the liberals. Now, the rationale for what he used or why was a very conservative rationale, which tends to be a lot more sort of looking at the, uh, at the law for the, for, the, for the language of the law rather than interpretation of it. Um, but we, we did look at it. Because, because, sorry to interrupt, but just because even that, the idea of voting, you know, liberal or conservative, or, you know, is in a way you have to almost define that because a justice's job is supposed to be to not necessarily legislate, right? So right. I think most people agree we've got a legislative ban- branch, we've got an executive branch, we have a judicial branch, and the judicial branch is supposed to look at things and interpret them and, and that kind of thing. Um, so even the idea of like voting, I could imagine talking to Kavanaugh and he'd be like, wait a minute, why did you expect me to do X, Y, Z? I'm supposed to be looking at this and sometimes that falls here and sometimes that falls here, right? You could see him saying that. Yeah. Um, and so even how we define this is important to do because it's not necessarily that they're saying, oh, what's the Republican thing I got to do and what's the Democrat thing? It's that there's a way that legal minds work in terms of how they interpret law. And it's that foundation that, at least as I understand it, that people look for either this kind of foundation or this one before they make that justice uh, election. Yeah. So I think, yeah, to that point, there, there is sort of the way to think about conservative versus liberals as it relates to the court is, I think it's in my mind across two different vectors. One is conservative beliefs, meaning like someone that is in general much more conservative about how they think about society, et cetera, right? And then conservative view of the law, right? And the conservative view of the law tends to be a lot more about interpretation. I'm sorry, a lot more of actually like exactly as it was written, not what the intent of the law is, or to some extent, to some extent, Interpreting the law relative to new factors that are more timely to what's happening now, right? Correct. So those that are in the more liberal sort of category tend to both have liberal ideology in sort of across the board and also have to have a much more liberal ideology for how they look at the law, 
meaning that it was a lot more based on, on interpretation. Um, and that's a big point of the distinction because when we looked at some of the studies that actually showed what the rulings were, so there was a couple of different studies done, one by Andrew Martin and Kevin Quinn that basically looked at the balance of, of decisions by the court uh, over the last 30 years. We actually looked at over the last 30 years. And what you saw was that while you definitely see a mix of, of, of where these, you know, these judges sort of fell, it seemed to be fairly balanced over the last 30 years in terms of being those rulings that sort of came in, sort of in the middle or, or more conservative versus more liberal, maybe with a slight conservative bend. Uh, and there was another model that was also done by Michael Bailey, um, I think out of Georgetown. Uh, and, like, and we'll have the links in the show notes. For yeah, slightly things. different outcomes, but sort of similar in sense, like fairly balanced with slight conservative lean. So you can see that these judges are not necessarily always falling squarely on just the conservative side or the liberal side, but with the ex- exception, maybe maybe Clarence Thomas is a, is a good exception, in the case that he tends to be pretty consistent of being conservative. I'm sure the same case in the case of some of the, the, the more liberal-leaning uh, uh, justices as well. I think this is really important, too, because we don't talk a lot about, you know, philosophy just in general as a discipline anymore. I think we've gotten wrapped up, especially as business people, you know, we kind of think, oh, that's something I studied in school, but it's not something that really comes into play every day. But, but there is an actual, like, you know— um, way or a study of thought of thinking. Mm-hmm. And this whole idea of, you know, progressive or liberal and conservative from a judicial standpoint rests on a philosophical premise, right? And one of the philosophical premises is this idea of, you know, do things, um, do the circumstances around something make the thing evolve, right? right. Or do they not? Do the circ- Are the circumstances secondary to the thing because the thing always is the thing? As long as it doesn't change, then the circumstances are secondary to that, right? That's like a pretty like important philosophical premise that if you follow that out like as a tributary, it's going to lead you to very different locations sure. yeah. a mile down the road, right? And and it rests here on this idea that if you're thinking about the constitution as something that is inviolable, right? Like it was written, it is the way it is, and it's something that gave us, it's almost like, you know, kind of a miraculous document in the sense that it's given us the ability to create a very, you know, compelling country country and civilization. And there, you know, the, the view that as a result of that, we have to look at the constitution strictly and then if something comes up today having to do with Google or Facebook or some new technology, AI, right. we have to look at it and like, well, what's the nearest thing we can find in the Constitution and use that as a sort of applicable thing? And that's like kind of a ridiculous way to describe it, but just to kind of make the point, it is how it was written. And so we're going to use and adapt those things. Then there's the other end of the spectrum, which is, wait, everything has changed. Everything has evolved. The framers didn't have this in mind. They could have never conceived of Google or Facebook or whatever. And therefore... And again, I'm making the extreme cases here. Therefore, none of those things apply. Meaning, forget about this First Amendment, Second Amendment, whatever it is, because they could never have imagined what we have. So therefore, we have to start almost from scratch and and now, um, you know, basically legislate, which is a, a tagline, I know, bumper sticker, but kind of legislate from the bench because the underlying thing never contemplated this right. kind of idea. Those are caricatures of the positions, but just to give you an idea they're, they're of kind of where exactly they are. exactly caricatures, because I think in some cases, some people do actually see it that way, right? Um, and I think with all these, of course, there's always a nuanced sort of approach because the reality, as awesome as the Constitution is, and I think the founders did got a lot of it right, the dynamics of the time they were living in, the size, the sort of the the... Even the best case version of what the future could look like 
I'm sure can even be contemplated. We think about that, right? And to your point about the original colonies versus now having this country that goes, you know, end to end with technology that there with the size of people and population that you have in the country makes it extremely, extremely challenging, I think, to account for all of it. And I think that's where you get into this, this dynamic of, of reading everything exactly as, or interpreting everything exactly as written, and you can't have any deviation from it. Um, and I think it does require some level of nuance. I think the, the rub becomes when it becomes so nuanced that it's just basically writing new law, which is not the role of the judicial branch, of the judicial branch right? That's the legislative branch that should be writing new law. Um, and I think that's the, the part where you do see a rub. But there's even this notion between conservative values and then conservative view of the law. And, you know, this, uh, the, 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 the new nominee, Amy, Amy Barrett, I think sort of falls squarely on both of those categories, right? So it's interesting. She's someone that is uh, a Catholic, uh, devout Catholic, and also has a history of having a very conservative view of how she interprets the law. As a matter of fact, she was a clerk for, for Justice, uh, Justice um, uh, Scalia. Scalia. Mm-hmm. So uh, what she also had sort of the same kind of bend. And I was reading some articles about her and even when she got nominated, because she currently sits as a, a um, seventh, uh, as a judge for the U.S. Court of Appeals, so the Seventh Circuit. And, um, you know, I was reading some of the, some of, some of the, the articles that we talked about when she got nominated for that and she was being questioned. But part of what she was being questioned about is, could she separate her faith from being able to do her job in the case where her job required judging on something that may contradict with their faith. And of course, it's illegal to actually use people's faith against them. But it does bring up an actually really interesting, interesting topic. Sure. It actually reminded me of, of uh, John F. Kennedy, mm-hmm. right? And how much, it reminded me, I mean, obviously it wasn't around when that happened, but, but it was. How it, old are you? Exactly. It reminded me of, of, of that coming up because he was, at least to my knowledge, the first Catholic president to yeah for sure right and yeah, and there was a st- this this major Although, concern that is he going to be controlled by the pope that's what that was the main issue there was would he be beholden because the pope many people don't know is also head of state right he's the right. head of vatican city is a country it's not just like some place in rome yeah. it's its own country and obviously he's the leader of the church so they had frankly i think a legitimate concern to at least ask the question especially if you don't know yeah, how yeah, catholicism yeah. works right um at least in 1961 or whenever it was he sure. was elected, a thousand years before, you would have been even more concerned to ask a question because popes actually ran, they yeah, were heads of state some, in a legitimate- pretty good reasons to be reasons a little concerned. To it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but I think in this case, it's a little bit different, obviously, because you know she's not the chief executive uh, or this nomination is not the chief executive. And it's a very difficult question to ask. You know, As a person of faith, I, I even think about people asking me, well, can you separate- that um, from the work that you do. And it, it's almost like saying, can you, you know, stop being married for this particular decision or not be a dad or not look at this as a husband or right. not be Latino for this decision. And it's like, man, it's a, it's a really, tough one. it's a tough one. I can understand you can nuance it and you could say in cases where blah, blah, blah. But it makes me, it puts me in a really uncomfortable situation if I was answering that to feel like either the answer is no and that has all kinds of political ramifications, or the answer is, I honestly have no clue, which is also a bad answer. Yeah, because you're literally asking somebody if they're very, if they're somebody who's very faithful, and you know she definitely is. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know we could talk about some of this that stuff in a second, but to ask them if they can sort of divorce themselves from that is literally asking somebody, hey, can you? you know, stop being, again, some of the examples that I gave you. Or think of it from a kind of a progressive standpoint, it'd be akin to saying, hey, can you stop being gay? 
for this sure. this particular decision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's you know, it's a very it's a wonky question. I realize that it's the, it's the question that you want to ask to get her in that spot, but it's honestly without any politics, it's an honestly difficult question to answer. I think it's an extremely difficult question to ask, and I could see how it's hard to answer in, in all scenarios, and it's hard to even separate yourself from who you are, and especially, and I think the the reason why it's relevant in this conversation is that when you are a justice and you're ruling on law for the, for the, for the, on interpretation of the law for the, for the, for the country, it, um, obviously some of your own personal beliefs in this case could very much be at odds with what that law actually is. And I think in that case. And, and or what the interpretation of the law actually is, right? So it, it is extremely, extremely difficult. And I would hate to say, but maybe there is some scenarios where there is actual conflict of interest where you, where you can actually say, you know what, guys, on this and one specifically, maybe I have to sit it out because by the way, I cannot divorce all- my personal belief views mm-hmm. to and, and with a good conscience sort of, you know, put this aside and still have an unbiased view of, of what this ruling should be. Yeah. And by the way, I mean, and full disclosure, as a lawyer, I'm a hell of a salesman. So I don't know what I'm talking about with respect to the law, but I do know enough to know that lawyers recuse themselves all the time. And judges do when they have a personal connection to a case, when somebody knows them and all that kind of stuff. I don't know if you can do it just because you have a strongly held conviction. I, I don't think that that's within recusal. Maybe it should be. But I do think that in a way, it's an unfair question. It's a political kind of question, though, to me. For like, maybe the right kind of question would be like, "Hey, it's definitely a political question for sure." Yeah, it, it was. I mean, it was, it was asked, I think, by, by Feinstein, I think, who actually asked the question. And mm-hmm. obviously, it was a case where you know they're sure. not wanting her to get to get to get that seat. We, I mean, you could ask a question like, "Hey, what documents will you consider when you do this? Will you consider the Bible, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, or the Constitution?" Like right. that would be a fair question because you could say, look, the lo- the church has its own law. It's called canon law that has no bearing on this. I'm going to be looking yeah. at the, co- that would be a fair question. But the whole idea of, can you stop being Catholic for this? It, it's my answer. The honest answer would be no for me. Like if I was a, I, ca- I can't in the same way that I can't stop being Latino. I can't stop being married. Like, it's just not the way that my makeup is what my makeup is. I am who I am, right? right. Um, well, by, the way, to, by the way, to to really clarify, she was not asked that question, right? She was not asked right. to stop being Catholic or can she? Is more, and I don't have the exact word to know how the question was asked, but it was more along the lines as, Fair enough. as being yeah. a I don't have the question either. Catholic. Yeah. How do you see being able to rule against some of these things where you got to basically, where they may go literally against your your beliefs? Mm-hmm. And that was more sort of along the lines of the question, which it's a different way than saying stop being what, what you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's uh it's it's dicey ground, but I think that, you know, ultimately to to the larger point is the court at at least at this moment does not seem, you know, reflective necessarily of the country that we're in. You know, perhaps you can make a case it's trending in that direction, but it still has a ways to go. Um and, you know, I'll, I would be a fan of the court being more closely aligned to uh, you know, the country that that we have in all respects. I mean, I, I think that's something that's a noble right. aspiration to have. So I've got no beef with that at all. I just think that, you know, the, the way that we've kind of like um, compartmentalized these decisions, we've tended to put them into these categories of conservative and liberal. And, you know, I think that that can also further the polarization that we're already seeing. And we haven't even touched on the impact that it can have for business. Right. Which, which, why don't we switch to that? Because, um, you know, obviously there's a bunch of impact that happens in the social sort of area and, and, and you know, human rights, et cetera, associated with, with what kind of court do you have. 
But on the business business as well, there is obviously an impact that happens there. And, you know, one sort of starting point that uh, I thought we could look at is, you know, when, when you think about having a much more conservative leaning court, there is, of course, a camp out there that, that feels that by having a more conservative court, it will be better for business because it could literally mean less regulations, right? Um, and then some of the proofs that will, this is from uh, a uh, an article on, um, I'm blanking, it'll come, it'll come back to me in a second. Is it Bloomberg? This is Bloomberg, thank yeah. you. This is Bloomberg, actually. And they mentioned in that article that since Roberts, uh, Chief Roberts became a Chief Justice, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce had won 70% of its cases it had argued before the court. So that's a pretty good track record in terms of getting things passed through. Now, one of the fears that liberals specifically have as it relates to a more conservative majority would be that the court will look to overturn what's known as the Chevron deference, right? Which basically holds that federal agencies can be allowed to interpret the laws they administer so long as the interpretation is reasonable, right? Which is literally what we're talking about earlier, right? Yeah. The whole notion is, do you look at the law exactly as it's written, regardless of what context, regardless of what has changed, and only view it from that lens? Or do you look at the law and make a reasonable interpretation to uh, basically account for elements that weren't initially considered when that law itself was written? And that's something a number of agencies have actually used. A, a good example of that, it was that it was actually the Chevron uh, deference that was used uh, to allow in the Environmental Protection Agency in 2015 to interpret that Clean Air Act also gave them the right to regulate carbon emissions. So you can see direct impact from views of the law has on actual business and, and things like regulation by some of, some of these agencies. And this is where those expressions like overreach that you hear all the time sure. come from, right? Or that so, you're writing new policy to some extent. So somebody who doesn't agree with this would say, um, yeah, you're now kind of looking out at the world and saying, well, I've got this thing that says, you know, um, that I want clean air. Carbon is bad for air. Therefore, mm -hmm. my domain now applies to carbon. And logically, like I can hear that and go, that probably makes a lot of sense. Right. But then the intricacies of what that means at a yeah. federal level has all kinds of dominoes that fall. Yeah. And the core issue here is what we're saying, right? Is the issue by either interpreting laws as written or and to not make new law or policy, right? So that's a big sort of point of, 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 of contention that is here. I think the other thing too, when we think about regulations is what impact does it have on innovation, right? And the reality is it, it absolutely can. The, the balancing act here is- You mean is, too many too many regulations can have an impact on innovation? Too many regulations can have an impact on innovations. Um, but the balancing act on that is that high innovation doesn't always go hand in hand with consumer protection. 100%. Right? And there's been plenty of cases if you think about, especially in the, the technology sector around data protection, around, um, yeah, I mean, data protection is probably a really big one that, that is there. I mean, we're literally going through an issue right now with TikTok where the president has you know tried very hard to shut it down. Uh, in the in the, I still the, don't know what the hell's going on with yeah, TikTok. So, <laughs> I've kind of lost. <laughs> we've track done on one that show one. on it already. I still don't know. It was actually a court case that happened over the weekend where they put a block on it on mm. uh, on not allowing it to be um, uh, to be shut down basically from from downloading on um, on Apple. We'll do a TikTok update at some point. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just so much going on there. But I mean, that's kind of a little bit of, of the challenge in there. And you've always had a sort mm. of this balancing act that you have um, that you have to have some level of, of policy and regulation against businesses, otherwise. The reality is, in the in the sake of, of of making money, many of these of these companies, even with good intent, will start getting to that gray area, and the that's one that a, tends to lose is uh, is is consumer. The consumer. That's the real dark side of capitalism, right? This kind of unbridled search for profits and growth and whatever at any expense. If you don't have the regulations, especially, I mean, look at 
know, what, again, social, what's going on with the social networks right now, that these platforms are becoming sources for, you know, other countries' infiltration. They're becoming, you know, platforms to sow division. Uh, and they've been utilized, like, against us, right? Um, and so you could say very logically and reasonably, hey, you know, we should have, like, this stuff be regulated. And even a couple of the social platforms themselves, Zuckerberg famously has said, like, yeah, I'm not close to that. Like, I, right. I think maybe we should have some regulation on us, right? So you can definitely see that. But at the same time, the argument, that's why the arguments at the extreme are, like, you know, kind of foolish, but that's the way that we talk in political sure. discourse. Because the argument on the extreme is, like, look, if I have to fill out 87 sheets of paper to have a brainstorm, like, I'm just not having the brainstorm. We're just not going to have the new product. We're just not going to do it. If I have to jump through, like, the seven circles of hell to, like, develop this new product, then there's a lot of reasons why I wouldn't. So get rid of the regulation. It drives innovation. Things are going to be good. But again, it's a question of, like, the balance, which ultimately one of my takeaways from this entire conversation, and I'll definitely mention it at the end, is that we kind of need the sides. We need each other. Right. It's a seesaw. We need each other to kind of keep ourselves together. And it's, you know, it's sort of both sides, but towards the middle. The problem is right now is it's both sides towards the outside. It's away from each other. Yeah. And that's the problem. If we have both sides towards the middle, then we're good. If we have both sides towards the outside, we're screwed, which is where we are right now. That's a great way to think about this. And, and a big part of the challenge that you have, right? I mean, the, the one sort of area of, in my mind, of um, silver lining as it relates to the Supreme Court is the fact that. There is at least some history in that even in cases where you have justices that were nominated and that at least were considered to be very conservative, you are seeing cases where they are coming back with a much more reasonable judgment, um, even if they're the way that they got to it may be one that is conservative in its nature, but still the outcome is one that benefits the people and is more in line to what the people in, in general you know, would, would expect to have. Um, and I agree with you. I think part of the challenge that you have now is that sort of pushes to, to pushing towards the edges. I mean, even the fact that you have a case where you have, I mean, the, really the, the, the role of the judicial versus executive versus uh, legislative branches is to actually keep each other in check. It's all about that. It's all about balance. It's all about balance. It, it doesn't actually not, work that way anymore because if you think about well, it, it, is the well, second both of them are in front of part of the same party, <clears> it's like we're going to jam through all the stuff that we can yeah. as quickly as we can at the last yeah. minute that we can yeah. until we lose our seats and then we'll basically complain until we get them back and then jam everything else again. That's because they've become, in a way, kind of factions, right? Yeah. So, you know, and you can see in some dystopian future, if we keep going at this rate, that there'd be some people who's like, well, you know what? I'm throwing in with the legislative branch. I'm throwing in with the executive branch. And like, that's how things get out of hand, right? People are like, no, I, I, I like this guy, or I like this group of people, or I like the justices. They're, that, that's, my, that's my team, right? And then you end up in this kind of faction, this kind of balkanization, which I definitely see happening around us. And I don't think that that ends very well, right? The whole idea of the way this was set up, to your point, checks and balances, like we're each checking each other, right? We're, we're like, you're going too far this way, so I'm going to check you back. In fact, one of the things that I read in preparation for this podcast was about the um, the judicial term, and I'm going to blank on it right now, but the judicial term that allows the Supreme Court to actually check executive and legislative orders. Mm -hmm. Like they're like, they can basically say, oh, that executive order you just signed, that's actually not okay. It's right. illegal. Yes. It's a huge check on the executive branch. It is. And the same thing on the legislative branch. And that is actually something that that 
that enables them to again. Well, that's already happened multiple times with President Trump because he's tested that theory. He's like he, a little sir, kid, right? Like he's like every day, kind of pushing, poking, poking the bear until it, it kind of slaps back. I wonder if there's some scientists who like Trump. You know, it's like because it's all about like testing and learning yeah, and exactly. experimenting. He's like, let's see if this thing actually works. If we could work this law, you know what I mean? For sure, yeah. Um, but I agree, and I think that's the. You know, that's the big issue is right now we are kind of, um, you know, not pulling, we're not, we're not exemplifying what can be the benefit of having the system that we have, which is that we kind of keep each other, right? You could, you can make a case, the progressive side of the equation keeps the conservative side from getting rigid and kind of brittle and stodgy and whatever, right? And the conservative side, you know, keeps the progressive side from going AWOL and off the rails and, you know, doing things that are unscalable, you know, things like that. So, like, you can see these ideologies meeting in something and kind of interlocking where you're kind of joining forces. But it's just sad to see that that's not so much where we're headed. I mean, the the challenge that you have is with with this kind of balance of the court and with the issues that are on the table, you could definitely see – a lot of things that could really, you know, potentially go go haywire here. I mean, you have everything from Affordable Care Act that is it's on the docket. As a matter of fact, that's actually I think the first one on the docket is that we're coming up as the court reopens in October or starts a new session in October, right? Which is all around healthcare costs, accessibility to health services. A lot of it tied to the whole notion that people have to have uh, healthcare, uh, the mandate associated with it. Then you have reproductive rights, which have come up quite a bit already, and especially because of the, who the nominee is, someone that obviously very, very religious and, and at least is viewed to have a sort of different stance that relates to Roe v. Roe v. Wade. But when you think of that relative to women representing nearly half of the workforce, what impact does that have in their ability to work, get promoted, launch business, et cetera? This are all these sort of downstream implications. There is legal immigration, something that this, especially um, um, uh, basically President Trump and his this administration, has gone after pretty hard. It's not just legal, but specifically legal immigration. And to what degree does that end up in the, in the Supreme Court? And, it, and everything we talked about on these federal agencies that have taken a more of an interpretation to, to, to basically to law in order to adjust for changing times, right? But having said all that, there's plenty of reasons how that could impact diversity across the board and, and, and business in, in general. What are maybe some thoughts on, I, I mean, I'm curious to hear, what would be your thoughts in terms of how that could get better Adjusted because to your point, what you said earlier is you love to see a court that is more reflective of the country. And as we talked about, the country is actually not as right leaning as a, that, what the court is at least going to be structured to be. I'm curious, and I know this is maybe not a city in reality because it's sort of the court has a very specific process for how people mm-hmm. can nominate it. But I, but I am I am curious on what your thoughts are of how you could find more of a balancing act here with what we have. I mean, look, I think some of it is practical, which is the kind of advice we give to businesses all the time is you got to change your watering holes, right? You got to look for places where, you know, and this this applies to the whole political apparatus, right? Is um, look for up and coming voices, up and coming people um, from a variety of different backgrounds and perspectives and points of view and bring them into these different causes so that they can get, into the pipeline so that you can actually have them. It takes work to do yeah. this stuff, right? So, I, and this is where, again, I'm out of my depth in terms of how, like, young lawyers clerk, and then the clerk becomes this, and then they go yeah. and they do a, their professor at NYU or whatever. So I don't know exactly how that works, but I think part of it is, you know, looking at different watering holes. Look at the presidents that we've had, right? We've had 45 presidents, and I think, like, 98% came from either Harvard or Yale, Right. And that's not a real step, but it's a high number. Okay, whatever it is. It's like two schools that produce like a ridiculous amount of our presidents. 
That's an example of not the same watering holes. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I think Biden will be one of the first in a while that wouldn't come from one of the Ivy League schools. Because even Trump yeah. was uh, Harvard, I think, right? Right. I think uh, I think he was Yale, actually. Oh, was he? Okay. Yeah. Um, I can look that up in the background real quick because I, I actually don't know. But um, anyway, my point is that's an example, if, you know, is super, uh, obviously, other side of the spectrum example of the same watering holes, time after time after time after time, and that's going to lead you with the same, same kind of results. So I think of that as a reason, as a way, it's a long-term plan. Admittedly, it's a long-term thing. Um, and I also think that, you know, we need more leadership in the other branches of government, right? So the, you know, the chairman, the, the chairman of the house and the president and whoever these people are have to make that case that, Hey, when we nominate justices and when we raise up lawyers and when we, you know, give, uh, you know, funding to, you know, historically black universities, things like that, that's in part an effort to, better have um, the the justices on the Supreme increase, Court represent. Increase the pipeline is what you're saying. Increase basically. the pipeline. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, well, increase the pipeline is part of it. I'm sure there's a lot of very qualified candidates already. It's increasing the pipeline also doing the work to change the watering holes now. Because, again, I'm sure that there's very, very well-known places where these brilliant minds typically come from. And looking at that a little bit differently, I think, would be an important first step in that direction. Yeah, I mean, the, the ones that I've heard... Um, as a way to course correct, if, if, if of course you're on, on the camp that you want to course correct, the overrepresentation of conservative ideology within the court, so the Supreme Court would be, and, and the first one is like to actually increase the number of seats, right? And that's one that has already kind of been floated a little bit that mm-hmm. potentially if, if Biden was to win, that could be a route that they could try to take um, of trying to increase the number of seats, which to me is a mistake because then... There's absolutely no reason why the next time a Republican uh, president and that has support from the Senate, they'll do the same thing and push it. So that's like a never-ending battle of just continuing to increase the number of seats, right? Maybe it's a short-term win, but um, but then it just you kind of end up in the same place. Um, I do think that it's kind of interesting to explore, or at least to think about having more set terms, not lifelong terms, right? Now, I understand the, the, the importance of having lifelong terms. I, I get it. In the sense that once someone is on the bench, they have no, um, they they have no incentive in any way whatsoever to have to adhere to anything that the president says, either current or going forward, because it doesn't impact at all their ability to stay on the bench, right? So once they get nominated, in some in some ways they're very very attached to the hip in, in the nomination process. But once they're in, they're kind of in, and you hope that by doing that. It sort of frees them from any kind of political influence. That's at least the idea. That's at least the idea, right? Yeah. Uh, but it also means that you have, I mean, in the case of, of Amy, Amy Barrett, you know, someone that is, I think she's 48, maybe, right? Like, let's say for some reason you just picked, and I'm not saying she is, but let, let's say she's just the wrong judge. Mm-hmm. You have yeah. someone that just gets in and you're like, what the hell did we just select, right? 45 years on You this have sucker. a while before, yeah. and there's really not much you can do about it. So that could be another way to sort of think about to the degree that. The reality is when a number of these folks, you know, were in, they came in from a very different generation, very different school of thought. And to what degree is it helpful to actually increase the number of people that actually go through the bench to bring in different points of view, different ideologies, so that you're not set forever. And it becomes this thing where, in the case of President Trump, you could have literally one president that potentially has a single term that replaces, you know, a third of the entire bench. And that's sort of a, a thing that could definitely happen, even if the controversy wasn't the case now. I mean, the reality, RGB has had some health issues. She could have, you know, passed away a year ago. 
potentially, right? So it, it wouldn't have been this issue like you're trying to jam it in at the last minute. It'd still be a situation where it gets complete, completely reshape the, the, the court for decades to come. By the way, I looked up the stat on uh, where the presidents actually graduated. Number one, I was right, it's Harvard, not that many. Harvard um, has eight, it looks like, presidents who served. Yale follows that. Then after that, uh, College of William and Mary, and then Princeton. And basically, that's 90% of the presidents we've had in this country. So mm. I forgot Princeton. <laughs> and um, right. But basically, those, those, three, those three folks. Um, yeah, I, I um, on the on the subject of appointments for life, and we talked about this briefly at the beginning of the show, but it had this it has this sort of vague religious connotation for me. And speaking of Catholicism, the fact that like the Pope, the Pope is elected for life, and even recently we had a Pope who actually resigned. It was the first time it had happened in six hundred yeah. years. So maybe that you have idea. Two living popes. Exactly, you have a Pope emeritus and a Pope who's actually the Pope, right? Yeah. But um, even that that idea of when you know, Pope Benedict stepped down and, and, and retired or resigned his throne, which wasn't wrong. It wasn't wrong to do. It just hadn't happened in 600 years. That now created a sense of people saying, oh, well, this can happen again because they're seeing an, an example of that. You know, maybe that could happen on the court. Somebody could say, you know what? Like, I'm just, I'm done. I'm, I'm retiring at 80 or whatever the year is. And then that opens up the possibility where this sure. isn't a life appointment. You have to like literally die, um, you know, serving on the court. I do understand the principle of it is to not have political leverage, basically. Mm-hmm. So that once you're in, you're in and 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 that's 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 how it works. So I understand that, you know, that particular concept and I see some wisdom in that. So I'm not sure. Not a not But I think setting committed. an actual end sort of end of a term wouldn't actually impact the level of influence it could have uh, or how much it could be influenced by by uh, any of the sort of executive branch or anyone else for that matter. It's just actually not having this, these things be lifelong. Now, I think the, the issue you start getting into is to, well, what is that term? How is that impacted by your age? They, you have ageism, right, that could be sort of thrown into that mix. Sure. So it is a complicated issue, but I personally love the fact of having this idea of actually changing the, the sort of leadership that's there, the ideology that is there, and be one where the, I think by doing that, you could actually have a court that will be a lot more reflective of the changing times and the changing sort of views of the country because you just have a more frequent sort of change of, of, of those that are actually, you know, serve on the, on the court itself. Mm-hmm. Whatever the term could be. It could be, listen, a max of 20 years. Okay, that's still a long time, but you, you're still in a position where you could actually have a much, a, a sort of more chance of actually um, uh, replacing those, 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 those justices on, on the court and be just more reflective of the country. Yeah, I, I, I take a little bit of a different view on that, as you could probably imagine, that I think if we... If we if we if we index too hard on, you know, c- kind of having the justices reflect what's currently happening today, we can run into a lot of difficulties as well, which has actually happened historically, right? So um, where we where the justices have ruled in one particular direction because they were living in a time and space that was actually wrong, right? They shouldn't have done things in the moment because the society said it was cool or they all believed it. And it took a future court to actually go back earlier than them to actually resurface what they should have done to begin with, right? So an example of that is uh, the court case of uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, which was in 1896, 
where the Supreme Court actually sanctioned segregation. They have holded this doctrine of separate but equal and said, look, as long as you've got the same stuff, it's fine for black people to have their own space and whites to have their own space, and that's good. That was the Supreme Court saying that. And in 1954, right, 60 years later, in in another case called Brown versus Board of Education, they actually held that this idea of separate schools was inherently unequal and that it wasn't constitutional. They, They looked at the Constitution and said, When these guys wrote it down, it was all men are created equal. It's like the first few words, all men are created equal and you guys screwed up. So if we're, if we're too much about the moment and the times, I think it can lead us to, you know, using that as a broad brush to say, here's why we should allow for this, right? Slavery, Jim Crow, separate, but not separate, but equal. Those are all examples of living in the moment that were wrong. They were not constitutional. They were not in keeping with what our values were. And so I think there's an important part of holding on to that constitutional foundation, seeing it in the light of the moment. I agree with you. I'm not like strictly like it's got to be the exact literal words because a lot of things don't apply. But I think if we swing too far in the other direction, then we run the risk of, of accepting and acknowledging and encouraging things that just because we're kind of living in it, we think is fine where it may not be. Yeah, but the living in it, I think the, the, the things that you're, I feel like you're, well, not confusing, but just sort of matching as, as being the same thing. Living in the moment versus having real representation of who the people are and what they believe in are two different things, right? Even to the case of Jim Crow laws. If you would have had black justices in that court at that time, yeah. because you already had the representation in the country, I would hope that you would have a different outcome then, even though in that moment, there was still a significant portion of the country, specifically in the South, who believed this was actually the right way to treat to treat these folks. And I wasn't so speaking— So that's, that's what I mean yeah. by like—and yes, these things happen in, during that time, mm-hmm. but I think part of how you solve for that is by actually having more of new ideology coming into the court yeah. in a more frequent manner so that you're able to actually account for these different trains of thought— that may not be reflected if you have a court that has been all been sitting there for the last 20 years that all came in in time when maybe it was a very different point of view for how the country should be run. And so, and just to be clear, I wasn't talking about representation on the court. I was talking about like judicial ideology, right? So like one that says that we have to look at what's going on today as the first step in rationalizing what we decide as opposed to what the constitution said 300 years ago. That's what I mean. Not I agree oh, 100% with what you just said, which like we should have more justice at a representative, but the ideology that says, let's look at what's going on in the world today first, or maybe even a 80-20, or we'll look at what's happening now, and then we'll look at what those guys had thought about 200 years ago. Like, fair. I think that can lead you to a lot of errors, potentially. Yeah, yeah, no, it's that's fair. Well, um, what, if any, <laughs> what, if any, um, you know, kind of interesting thoughts do you have, takeaways for folks who might be listening relative to what's going on in their, in their business lives? I mean, I think on the business side, I think the reality is that it's going to be, I think, very a very interesting time to see what happens um, post uh, Amy Barrett becoming uh, the next justice. Because the reality is, yes. I mean, at this point, they have all of the votes um, in the Congress and Congress. So I see no scenario which she doesn't go in. Um, I think if you're a business leader and looking at this, the things to think about is what, as an organization, can you do to help continue to create the environment and protect your employees, your consumers, things that actually as a business you take on for yourself, even if the law is not necessarily doing it for you, right? We talked a little bit earlier about this whole notion between innovation and regulation. Well, part of the reason why some of these companies, especially a lot of these internet companies have gotten themselves in trouble is the fact that they didn't do enough to self-regulate. 
and got themselves to a point where then you had to have these federal agencies come in and actually regulate for them. And maybe we are going to have to get to a point where there is more of that sort of self-assessment, more from the standpoint, not because it's the right thing to do, because let's, let's face it, most people don't do things because it's the right thing to do, but maybe because, because whether or not there is precedent from a Supreme Court or from a legal case is more about consumer view. So maybe the check and balance in this case, maybe actually that is how do consumers view what you're doing as a business? How will consumers sort of interpret how you're treating your employees? And how much does that weigh in to your decisions of how you operate versus what a legal case, a legal court could actually force you to do, right? And maybe that ultimately, the balance of power should become possibly that, is as consumers, as individuals, we have a lot of savior. We've actually seen a lot of that in this current moment of, of social uh, cause and social sort of protest is that consumers do have a lot, a lot of say that in some ways can actually be a lot more powerful than what the judicial system can or can't do. And unfortunately, many times businesses that sort of rely to push or finding what those boundaries are that are directly written or defined by the legal system. Maybe the boundaries need to be more defined uh, by consumers and what people actually think. So I think that's as a, as a business owner and as a leader, being a lot more aware of that and actually thinking about first consumers first, employees first, uh, even if it's before getting to the line of whatever the legal limit is, I think maybe the right way to sort of approach these things. That's super, super insightful. Agree with that 100% actually. Um, for me, it's maybe a little bit more uh, the softer side of things, but um, I think that it's a question, what this whole situation brings to light for me is the question of this balance and the question of the fact that you know, when we are doing it right, we check each other and need each other because we're all pulling towards something together, right? We're unified in something, even if we have different points of views, right? So I think that that whole principle, and you see it in business with the regulation versus innovation, you can see a negative outcome of either approach in the absence of the other. If you only have regulation, it stifles innovation. If you have unbridled kind of capitalism and need for innovation and just make the next buck, you hurt people in the process. And those are clear to see. And, you know, we have to take decisions as business leaders to, well, lead and to communicate to our constituencies, especially the ones internally, that we're striving to do things that enable us to strike a balance so that we can thrive, because that's what it should be about. It should be about thriving. And we should be able to see these these sort of uh, these forces that are different and have them not be in opposition to one each other. Right. And I think that's kind of the big thing that I see from this whole exercise about the Supreme Court. You know, it's really interesting, Charlie. So yeah. I was listening just because as I hear you describe this, it's, it's random thought, but I think very re- re- relevant. Mm-hmm. I listened to a, um, an episode, actually, of the Joe Rogan experience, and he was interviewing Frank Von Hippel, right? And this is, he's a scientist. He spent a lot of time sort of looking at, at, um, at the rainforest, and especially as it relates to um, uh, developing medicine from that and sort of different things, right? But he was, they, were, they got into this random part of the conversation where they're trying to understand why do birds sort of fly the way that they do, not when they're migrating, but when, they, when you see them sort of in the air and they're in the, on this group being kind of- swayed, swarming. The swarming, yeah. right? And th- what, what this person, what this uh, Frank described is that the reason why that happens is that this swarming that happens that it seems to be all in unison is really created by the fact that the most dangerous part for this flock of birds to be is on the outside. So it's this whole process that the birds on the outside are trying to get to the to the middle. And that's what actually creates this, this view that it seems like they're finding unison because you have this constant motion of birds on the outside mm. trying to come back to the middle. And it actually makes the entire group move as one. 
So in this context of what you're bringing yeah. up right now, I think if we do more of that, if instead of pushing to the outsides, but go from the outside trying to push back to the middle, then I think as a country, it just helps us be able to move more as one, even if it's a bumpy road, even if it's going to be swaying from one way to the other because there's never a, a straight line. But it just, and here you describe that, it just, it just made me think of this story that I was hearing. Uh, obviously, this doctor sort of explained in, the, in, the, in, the, in that podcast episode of, of the way that, that birds fly together when they, when they swarm. Well, I can't top that. So let's uh, let's close on that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Diversity Remix. Please join us again next time. We'll see you later. If you enjoyed this episode of the Diversity Remix, please remember, first of all, to subscribe and help us to spread the word. Tell your friends, family, coworkers, and give us a five-star review. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your listening fix. And lastly, please remember to stop by blackbrown.us, the creator of this podcast, and take a look at our work and our approach at the intersection of diversity and business. The Diversity Remix is produced by Leo Gomez, with production services by Jose Manuel Durquidi and Luis Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Network. The Diversity Remix is a production of Black Brown. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.